Welcome to Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast with fraud expert Skip Myers. This is your guide to fighting fraud and chargebacks. Learn the best fraud prevention solutions and strategies. How to enhance your fraud prevention team. And how to prosecute criminals. Now, here's your host, Skip Myers. Coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia, this is the broadcast that gives you the knowledge and tools to help you ruin a bad guy's day before they ruin yours. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast. I thank you so much. Hey, I'm Skip Myers. I'm the host of Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio, and I want to start off by thanking everyone who continues to support the show, and especially those loyal listeners who keep sending in all that great feedback and all those terrific emails. Thank you very much. So, hey, guys, as promised, Ruin Bad Guys Day Radio will be featuring some of the top fraud fighters in the industry and fraud experts for 2019. And today, I am especially excited to introduce to you Jim Rossi. Jim is a nationally acclaimed author and a historian and a LinkedIn top voice with over 430,000 followers. Wow, that is awesome. Hey, and Jim is an author of this great new book called Clean Tech Con Artist. It's a true Vegas caper, a fantastic nonfiction story about crime and corruption set in Las Vegas. So, hey, Jim. Hey, I'm so glad you could join us today. How are you doing? Hey, Skip. I'm doing great. It's a little hot here in Vegas. It's cracking 100 already by 9 in the morning, but otherwise, doing great. Hey, guys. We're coming to you, you know, from Atlanta, Jim's in Vegas, and this is the uh, Labor Day weekend. I hope you guys are doing great and hope you hear this, you know, loud and clear very soon and, and some great information about Jim's great new book that's coming out and is actually out and available on Amazon. So, hey, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself in your book for our listeners? Yeah, happy to. You know, I worked as a writer and this story, this book started when I was in graduate school. You know, during the Great Recession, all my editors were getting laid off, and so I wound up going to graduate school for history at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And it started out, I was going to do my first book about history, the history of solar energy. That's what I was studying. And then what happened is, over time, as I met people, and in particular, a certain fellow named Xavier, it became a fraud story wrapped in a history book. That's awesome. You know, hey, your book is nonfiction, which is great. And it has so many end notes and all kinds of great information that really keeps the reader, you know, really captivated in your story. But it reads just like a novel. How were you able to create all that information and make it really look like a, a novel? Well, it was a real challenge, Skip, and it took several years. So yeah, it has 462 end notes with over a thousand references and over 80 interviews. I did this over several years, but it reads like a novel because in some sense it is a novel because I wrote the story in real life. And let me just explain. Early on, I met this clean tech entrepreneur named Xavier. He went by the name of X and I liked the guy, but I quickly became suspicious of him. And the more I looked into it, I realized his name was probably an alias. I eventually figured out it was an alias. I eventually found out what his real name was. That's right around the time the FBI contacted me. And at that point, it was off to the races. So at that point, I knew this was going to be my book. So from the beginning, I took copious written notes of every conversation, uh, collected emails, archived them. Eventually, I wound up filing legal requests to get emails from UNLV and different things. Also, the con artist, Mr. Xavier, and his colleagues were talking to other people. Eventually, those people forwarded me their text messages, their emails. Uh, I interviewed most of these people on the record, and I was able to reconstruct, in a lot of cases, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, face to face nose to nose, eye to eye, what was going on as it happened. And so that's why it reads really like a novel. Like I'm not just a reporter. I'm actually the person driving the action. No, that's awesome. And then, you know, for someone who's got that desire to investigate, which it looks like it's probably in your DNA and someone who's just like, 
uh, hyperactive, curious about information and drilling down to the truth. You know, how does a graduate student like you that's in history really w wind up hunting down carn artists? Yeah, that's a great question because I'm kind of an unusually kind of alpha grad student in history, you know? And so I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, and through kind of a happenstance, I learned how to spot a con job before I hit puberty. Now, when I was <laughs> in first, second grade, we had an elementary school that ran from like first grade to eighth grade. And I remember there was this older student named Dave Bucalo, and he one time he came to our lunch table, and he we were really excited. The older kid was talking to us. You know, he was going around the table talking to us. And then when he left, we realized our cookies were gone. Like we each got a cookie with our lunch. You know, when you're in awesome. first, when you're in first grade, this is a big deal. Your cookie's gone. So we started complaining, and he eventually came back with the bag and he dumped out. And we wound up everybody got a cookie. We wound up getting some somebody else's cookie. So what Dave Bucalo had done was he had shown us a shell game. And the thing was, we had just learned from a master because Dave Bucalo, he grew up to become David Blaine, the master illusionist. Oh, awesome. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had spotted that from the time I was a kid. And then, you know, I grew up, I went to, I got my bachelor's degree at Rutgers in psychology and human evolution. I wanted to work as a writer. So I did work as a writer, investigative journalist for years. I actually won a couple, I won an award for it. So I learned on the job how to find out information, public records, interviewing, clues, those kinds of things. And then what happened I was just making it as a writer in San Francisco when the Great Recession hit. And I was going to be out on my butt. And so that's when I applied to graduate school. And so UNLV was not hard to get into, but I got in and I got a uh, graduate assistantship. So they basically, it was paying my tuition. So that was a good, that was the best deal. You know, I went from San Francisco, I was going to be out of, out on my butt to graduate school, basically without going into debt. And so I was there studying wind, studying solar energy. And that's where our story begins. That's awesome to, to really get your, the, you know, your roots in inv investigations and fraud prevention, or at least having that inquisitive mind at such an early age. And I think that's a lot of people that's listening today know exactly what you're talking about. You got the bug at an early age and somehow you're just a natural. That's, that's, that's great. I think a lot of our listeners can really, really understand what that's like. Cause we're all, we're all very similar with that type of personality. You know, hey, Jim, you know, in your book, you make a great point that you're not a journalist. And I was, almost made that same mistake when we first met. And I want to apologize, especially in today's news world. It's it's crazy with all the fake news, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, so you, you, know, you worked in journalism uh, at the LA Times and elsewhere and earned a master's degree in journalism. And you actually interviewed dozens and dozens of people and have 460 something end notes in this very book. So can you explain a little bit further what you are really, you know, trying to explain to the audience about, you know, the point that you're not a journalist, but what we're really trying to do to achieve, you know, with the audience in this new book that you have? Yeah, sure, Skip. There's a short answer and a long answer. So the short answer I'll give you first. The short answer is how many of you guys out there have seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, so there's a great scene where he gets out of the shower. He said, isms, in my opinion, are not good. You know, I don't believe in isms. I believe in me. It's a good point there. Mm -hmm. So... Partly is I'm not a journalist because I don't really like isms. You know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not a socialist. You know, I just, I try to understand things. And so the longer answer is, you know, I'm not a journalist for a number of reasons. One, I don't write in a journal. I mostly write on LinkedIn now in books. So I don't write in a journal. Most journalists, the business model relies on getting paid through advertising or donors or subscriptions. Gotcha. I don't do any of those, you know? And so another thing is too, is I really don't cover breaking news. I don't, you know, I don't like covering like disasters and tragedies and stuff. And that's how they make money. I try to write about solutions. I didn't done that about, about uh, wildfire prevention. I've done that about uh, water conservation. This book kind of became an exercise in fraud prevention. And so the thing is, I don't really report the story. If you read the book, you realize I'm a main character. I drive the story. Absolutely. You know, I started out, I tried to interview X and his pals. They didn't want to answer my questions. Eventually, they started sending me cease and desist and threatening to sue me. But they kept trying to run scams around people I cared about. So that's what motivated me. So I hunted them down. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, in today's world with journalism, yes, yeah, getting a bad rap. And, and I remember long ago in law enforcement when we used to work big cases, 
a journalist or a reporter told me one time, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. And that was kind of sad. It's a lot of good information and news is out there that should be newsworthy, but it's never reported because it's not horrific enough. And I think the general public needs more information like this that you put together in your in this book, which is so informational and educational that you really get out there. So that's congratulations. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Skip. The idea with the book is I wanted to write an entertaining story that hooks you. And then if I succeeded at the end, almost by accident, you're going to be an expert at fraud prevention. Well, I don't think you don't have a, have a problem with getting more people, you know, interested in your book. I mean, you having over 430 follower, 30,000 followers on LinkedIn, it shows you can build an audience way more than most other people, including journalists who are out there just to make a buck. So congratulations. And uh, gang, I've, I've read three quarters of his book so far. It is very entertaining, very informational. It, it hooks you from the very beginning. And I highly, highly recommend it. We'll talk more about Jim's book as we go on. But Jim, you know, you mentioned in the book that during the Great Recession, you know, President Obama helped bring in the motto, you know, everyone remembers this, change we can believe in. And it hooked a lot of people, but that change we can believe in statement, it's it came with a $787 billion recovery act, which was passed in 2009. And that act, if you everyone remembers, laid out more money than ever before for clean energy and energy efficiency. And Jim, with so much money going into clean tech energy at that time, do you think that helped spawn new scams and new schemes to defraud the government and us, the taxpayers? Skip, that's a great question. And I cover it in some detail in the book. Let me say my short answer would be yes, but, and let me explain. So the Recovery Act, like you said, about $787 billion total is about not, roughly $90 billion, I think, for clean energy and energy efficiency, mm -hmm. and roughly about $11 billion in and around the Mojave Desert. And, you know, Vegas is the big city in the middle of Mojave Desert. So there's a lot of money coming into Vegas during the middle of the recession, which was the worst economic period in the history of Southern Nevada because it was worse than the Great Depression. Because if you think back during the Great Depression, we had the original job stimulus. We had Hoover Dam. So it was actually was a boom period here. So this was the worst time in our history. You know, Vegas in a lot of ways is the fraud capital of the world. And so you could kind of expect some things were going to happen. Now, that being said, I do not think clean energy is a scam, but as I discovered in my book, some of the people promoting it are. Right. And that lure of easy money seems to be really the um, the driving force in some of this. So some companies, if I remember right, Sladera was a company that went belly up from obtaining a lot of money from the Recovery Act as well. Yeah, I think you mean Slendra. That's right. Right, right. And let me say too about X and his enablers, what was, to your point, what was real interesting is Act 1 of the book is when I find out I, I get to know him, I become suspicious, and I realize his, his identity is an alias, and I figure out, with the help of my friends, what his real name is. Act two of the book is when we go into his past to find out why he changed his identity. And what we found out was that X and his pals, they had basically gone into every industry as it was full of money. You know, he in the past, he had done scams in real estate, charities, neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, which mm -hmm. some of your listeners are probably familiar with. You know, he even had an elaborate phony video game company in Colorado that was so elaborate. They had offices, they had a trailer, they had a comic book, they had a bunch of employees writing code. And so I think he just followed the money. And when the recession came, being in Vegas, it was a good time to run the scams with a clean energy front. Absolutely. It's kind of like a nice for little front too, because I mean, it feels good to people. You're trying to do the right thing with clean tech energy and energy efficiency. And I mean, it's, it really gets the public's attention because everybody wants to try to do that. And why not be a part of that? But if you're a fraudster, you really prey upon those emotions of people who want to be a part of something as good as clean tech energy. Yeah, exactly. And one of the points I make in the book is, you know, if people are naive or they're cynical, they're both at a lot of risk of fraud. You know, naive is when you just blindly think the best of people and cynical is when you just blindly think the worst. In either case, you leave yourself vulnerable to fraud. I try to encourage people to be skeptical. Skeptical is not cynical. Skeptical just means, hey, I'm not going to be convinced of anything without evidence. Exactly. Yeah, that's why this, you know, and I'm so grateful you're part of the show because our driving force behind this show is the education awareness for most people so that we're armed with that information so that 
bad guys can't ruin our, our day. We want to turn around and we want to use that information against criminals and ruin their day. So that that's awesome. Definitely. You know, Jim, in, 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 that, in a chapter that was really interesting to me, the chapter called Vegas Skim, you really get into the historian side of your personality and, and really explain the history of the mob, the history of how Las Vegas has evolved through the years. And you even explain a little about Machiavelli, which hopefully some of your guys can go back in your memory banks and remember a little bit of high school and college there. But, you know, what motivated you to educate the reader and all of us to include those topics in your book? Great question. Couple of reasons. One, first of all, I find it fascinating to think about how Vegas got here and it was important to the story. You know, the mob organized crime really helped to build this city. Like if it wasn't for them, this place wouldn't be here. You know, a hundred years ago, you know, Vegas was found in 1905. So basically in a hundred years, we went from a little railroad stop to a, a major metropolis of 2 million people. And, you know, these guys did it because they, they took the risks. And so they actually really built something. And so what happens is on some level, the line between right and wrong, good and evil, mirage and reality, they get kind of blurry here and it makes sense. And there's very good reasons why people here don't trust the cops, particularly the feds. And if you go back to the history of nuclear testing, you know, right outside the city of Vegas, uh, you know, a lot of people got showered with radiation. It's been something for decades. So there's kind of a natural distrust. It also has to do with people not wanting to pay taxes and the mob, you know, paying cash and those kinds of things. So I wanted to get into that. The second reason is there's a saying in history that I really believe one generation's solution is the next one's problem. And so we get into the law enforcement finally got the upper hand on the mob. If people have seen the movie Casino, mm-hmm. they know it was it was wiretaps, it was closed circuit cameras that allowed them to build systematically build cases against the mob and eventually break the mob stranglehold. Now the thing is the saying is bugs, not bullets, did in the mob. Bugs like, right, like yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Now, what yeah, what happened, though, is learned how to exploit the technology to commit that's crime. Right. And so that's why we have this epidemic of fraud using all kinds of emails, phishing scams. It's con artists using age-old tactics, but new technology. And Mr. X and his friends are really a textbook example of that. And that's kind of why I spent so much time trying to understand what they were doing and to blow it up in their faces. No, that's great. And, and for those of you all who haven't read the book yet, when you get to this chapter, at least for me, it's very interesting that, you know, you think you know a little bit about the mob and how it affected Las Vegas and built Las Vegas, but also to how technology in that region of the United States, especially Las Vegas, has evolved through the years. And exactly what Jim said, how in that case with the FBI, bugs took down the mob, not bullets. And that is a great, great point on how technology, at least in this case, the good guys used it. Uh, unfortunately, the bad guys seem to be better at using technology than than the good guys. <laughs> Isn't that right? Definitely. And let me mention, go back to Machiavelli really quick too, as a historian, you know, I think he sometimes gets a bad rap because Machiavelli, he wasn't immoral. He was amoral. In other words, he was trying to take the morality out of his analysis because he figured people have different morals the idea he was trying to show you actions and consequences. Right. You do this, this is likely to happen. And so that's kind of the theme of my book is a quote from Machiavelli. It is a double pleasure to deceive the deceiver. And that is basically what my book no, is No, that's about. a great quote. And that fits so perfect into what you're writing about. And uh, those of you who haven't heard that quote, you know, you should make some notes because you can use that again too. And, um, and go back to your history books or back to middle school and, and learn a little bit more about this this great man uh, and the prince, which was something that um, Machiavelli is known for. So definitely you'll get a crash course. Yeah, on that's book. awesome. You know, we, co- we cover a lot of historical stuff, like right in like a page or two as it's, as it's relevant to the story. No, that's, that's awesome. You know, you know, so we're talking about the good guys and the bad guys and using bugs and not bullets and stuff like that. But, you know, something I was thinking about asking, you know, you know, why not just leave, you know, catching or investigating the con artists just to the cops or, you know, why should just, people like us get involved? You know, it's a great question. And it's a question that people asked me a lot as the course of the story was going on. And as I learned in the course of the story, there's way, way too much fraud for the cops to bust. 
Agreed. you know, the nature of fraud, it's very, yeah, it's very complex. These are hyper rational criminals, especially these guys that we're talking about. These were not stupid people. They were very smart. They had been trained in hypnosis, uh, masters of Photoshop forgery. You know, these people ran scams sometimes, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 months before they saw a dollar. You know, these are very smart, patient people. These are the people that the, the feds are really the only ones that could get a beat on them. And so, as they explained to me, it's often not worth their time to spend millions of dollars to put somebody in club fed for a year or two. And the thing is, even if they do, even if you get a civil judgment, what are the odds you're going to ever see a dollar back? Mm -hmm. Low. And here's the thing I've had, you know, there's bounty hunters who helped me in the book, the friendly neighborhood bounty hunters, as they explained to me, you know, they only get involved when they can recover money. But the thing is, they said, what you have to understand is it's almost never your money. It's the money from the next scam. Oh, yeah. And you have to think about that. So basically an ounce of prevention is worth way more than a pound of cure. If you, you know, if you want to protect yourself from fraud, the police will tell you this. Don't count on the police. It's just too. It's just too difficult. You know, there's just too much of it going on. So I believe the best defense is good offense, and that's really, like I said, what this book is about. Like deceiving the deceiver. No, that is great, great advice. No one is going to care about your finances, your personal information, your home, and your car more than you are. You think it might be the police, but Jim's exactly right. There's too many other parties and players out there that uh, are having problems every day that the police have to answer those calls to. So you need to take your physical security and personal security very seriously yourself first and foremost. Definitely. And I will say, Skip, I mean, you should take it very seriously, but maybe not quite as seriously as I did. Now, I think a lot of people reading this book about two thirds of the way through, they're going to start feeling sorry for Mr. Hanks. <laughs> Because when you get when you get on my bad side, I'm not a nice person. Oh, you got that this is like a monster caged up in there. Yeah, like I make the point in the book, it's not like and you could probably appreciate this as you know, being a police officer and an investigator. It's not that I can't be diabolical, is that I choose not to because I like people. I'm a good person. But if somebody gives me an excuse Watch out. You know, yeah, absolutely. Well that, you know, that and that's true of most people. And I think those who are listening on this radio show today and i thank everyone who tuned in is that you know the good guys you have an edge to you and and, and the ed, that edge is knowing how bad guys act and being truth truthful with yourself and your own emotions and feelings and that's part of our superpowers to investigate fraud and understand it it's just really controlling that that monster within so that you can really I guess, bring out the best in yourself to fight the fraud because you don't want, we do not want to cross the line and be like them. That's a great point, Skip. And actually it brings me to like early on in the book, one of the things that tipped me off and made me suspicious of Xavier was that he wasn't, the thing was he never tried to scam me. Mm -hmm. He was very uh, hands off. He was, I got the sense that he was trying to stay away from me. And I think that what he was picking up on was that edge that skepticism because what happened, and I think this is a useful lesson for people, was I had gotten to know this guy at different clean energy events, lectures, conferences, stuff like that that's going on around Vegas constantly. And, you know, he mentioned that he was a clean tech entrepreneur. They designed solar panels and stuff. And so I was really excited. I was learning about that at, in school at the time. And so I would ask him specific questions about it, you know, mm -hmm. just general curiosity. You know, you know, the thing is most people, when you meet somebody in your profession, Usually the trouble is to get them to stop right. talking. That wasn't the problem with him. You know, he he did not provide specific answers to specific questions. He would kind of excuse himself. And uh, that's just how he was. And he was trying not to give me any information and make me suspicious. But the act of him doing that made me suspicious. Yeah, you're right in your book. You could tell, I think after you said the first time you met him, and I'll just use some of our own, my own terms, your spidey sense was up. You knew something wasn't right about this guy. Yeah. And what I call it ever since I was a kid, I suffered from ZBT, zero bullshit tolerance. <laughs> you know, it's all thing, you know, it, yeah. And the thing is, it, it's a combination of intuition and facts, right? Like I had a feeling about him and I mentioned it like early on in the book, I had been at a conference with him and he had basically gotten a new position where he, he wanted to be mentoring our students at UNLV. And I went to bed and I woke up in the morning and I had this very vivid dream 
And the dream was from a book I hadn't read since eighth grade. I had a dream about the catcher and the rye. And if people read that book, the expression, the catcher and the rye was they ask Holden Caulfield what he wants to be when he grows up. And he said, I just have this dream. There's a big field with a cliff on the edge. And if the kids get too near the cliff, my job is to save them. I have a big net so they don't fall off the cliff. I would just be the catcher Mm -hmm. and the rye. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty powerful. And so my intuition was very strong, but it was just a feeling. I needed facts. I needed evidence to pursue it. And that's really where there was blood in the water. And I became You know what's great? So, yeah, when you mentioned Catcher in the Rye and the book, I had to go back and, and kind of scratch my brain a little bit. And I, and I looked up some things on the, on the web about some great quotes out of the book that would fit into what you're saying. And one of the quotes of the catcher of the rye, and some of y'all may remember this, but what's great is that uh, one of the quotes is all you have to do is say something nobody understands and they'll practically do anything you want, you know? And so that's kind of curious about some of these uh, con artists and frosters. I mean, they can talk, well, like you said, I mean, with a lot of BS and make people believe they're true and honest because most people may not know exactly what they're talking about. But if they say it enough and it's a lie, the lie becomes a truth. And I think we've heard that before too. Yeah, great point, Skip. And especially because Xavier, as it turned out, X had been trained in hypnosis and NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. So he was looking for people who were susceptible and he would use his language to try to hypnotize them. And maybe just a real quick example of this in action was once – I realized he was suspicious. I had checked his resume, his LinkedIn profile, his former employers and his former schools and things didn't add up. And so I, we started asking people around town who knew him and I started filling up a notebook with anything that people remembered. And somebody who remembered at one of these conferences, he didn't like to talk to me about solar energy, but he had spoken to somebody else. And he said that he had this new solar company and they were testing six-sided solar panels and they were testing them in the Sahara Desert. So I was like, why are they testing them in the Sahara Desert? At that time, all these companies were testing them in Nevada because we have a bunch of desert and sun. And so I was like, why isn't he testing them in the Sahara? And he said, somebody asked that. And he said, because it's hotter, it's hot year round in the Sahara. He can get better efficiencies on the panels, you know, because Vegas is in the Mojave. Oh, Mojave is right. cold during yeah, but the thing is, here's the here's the kicker, Skip. I'd been studying, I took engineering classes in solar panels. For reasons I don't completely understand, semiconductors actually conduct slightly better in cold weather, 5 to 10%. Interesting. So, yeah, so his answer was BS. And I was like, you know, because if you don't get better efficiencies in hot weather. You get better efficiencies right. in cold weather. So, you know. Yeah, if he was actually a solar panel engineer, he would know that. So th- at that moment, I knew that he wasn't really a solar panel engineer. Well, that makes sense because the little that I know about computer equipment and servers, and some of our listeners could could probably say yes to this, is that most servers and, and computers work much better in a cooler environment. You, the server room in your organization isn't uh, – well, it's always air-conditioned. It's at a cool temperature. Otherwise, if it gets too hot, what happens? Well, it's just now. Yeah, definitely. Like right now, if you have, depending on what your solar panels are made out of, if you have them on your roof or we have big farms of them out in the desert around Vegas is like today, it's going to be 110, 112 degrees. You're probably going to generate, it's sunny out though. You're probably going to generate five to 10% less electricity than you would on a day in January. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else being equal. Gotcha. So that's like, I mean, a fact evidence-based answer. And that's the, exactly the kind of answer that he didn't want to give me because he was worried that I would spot it. Man, that's great. You know, you know, we were talking about before, and I totally agree with what you said, that there's just so much fraud out there and there's just too much fraud out there for the police to investigate. And what's great that I read in chapters 9 and 10, and this is great, y'all, you need to get to these chapters, and is how you explain when the FBI – Yes, guys, when the FBI actually called Jim and wanted to learn more about his research, and that had been such a great feeling. You know, I'm sure at first you're a little nervous. Yeah, why is the FBI calling me? That doesn't normally happen. But, you know, how did that make you feel knowing the FBI is actually interested in your research? Yeah, you know, honestly, Skip, at that point, and you've read through the book, the first emotion I felt was relief. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because one is I knew I wasn't in trouble, and the FBI called me. 
and they were like, you're not in trouble. You're under no obligation to speak to us, but we heard well, you yeah, we're knocking on us. your door with a search warrant. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was funny because I was headed to the golf course. I had my golf bag over my shoulder when they called. So I was like, hey, let me put this back, you know. And yeah, because at that point, I had discovered Mr. X's real identity. At that point, I had interviewed people from his past, and I was convinced that he had engaged in fraud. You know, at that time, I still didn't understand all the dynamics of it. And I was certain, metaphysically certain, that he was engaging in fraud in my community. And he was trying to scam money from people I cared about. So I had already gone to UNLV police. And like I said, the FBI, a couple of days later, called me. So we could kind of infer like what happened. So I was excited at that point. I, I went to the FBI's headquarters in Vegas. You know, I went through the metal detector and got searched and stuff. And I actually, you know, gave them a briefing and an interview for awesome. about an hour and 45 minutes. And I get, you know, they asked if they could photocopy my notes and stuff. And at that point, I figured, you know, hey, look, I caught this criminal. The feds will deal with it. As it turns out, it turned out to be a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, sounds like it. FBI is a little, uh, well, very methodical. Uh, and very precise uh, with their investigations. I'm, I bet you uh, you learned that pretty quick, right? Definitely. And also, you know, they have to pick their spots. That's how the feds explained it to me. You know, there's, you know, some people do wind up get, getting busted. Some people, it's rough justice. It's bankruptcy. It's civil judgments. Some people get off. You know, they try to, uh, he, as he explained to me, it's like the uh, Serengeti and we're a bunch of lions but there's only so many fraudulent zebras. Right. That we well, it goes back to what you said earlier. There's so much fraud and just not enough time for the police to investigate up at all. Yeah, definitely. And my sense of it is, you know, I wish the FBI would spend less time with all this political nonsense in Washington and stuff and spend more time, you know, actually catching criminals out in the field. My sense is the FBI agents that I know, current and former, the ones in the field are doing a really good job. But I'm not like super pleased with what their bosses are doing. I think the general public would agree with you. And you're right. I think it would serve them best as a fraud practitioner to really, uh, from a PR standpoint, really bust those fraudsters are actually victimizing people like us every day. Definitely. Like I say in the book, you know, fraud is a trillion dollar per year problem in the U.S. when you consider fraud, cyber fraud, intellectual property theft. And X and his pals were engaged in all of these things. As I discovered in my book, a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. alone, four trillion globally. And the thing is, that's just years and years and years of human mm-hmm. work. You know, people work to earn money to put their kids through school, to pay health insurance, to pay off their mortgages. You know, fraud is, you know, just because it doesn't involve violence, it's not a victimless crime. Yeah, some of the people that X and his friends ripped off. You know, these were people with the retirement money, those kinds of things. And that's the reason why I went medieval mm-hmm. on him. You know, what's sad, too, is that so many people that, that are victimized, they don't share what happened to them out of embarrassment or, you know, it's very emotional to them. It's, it's very shameful to them. And so a lot of these fraud cases that are out there go unreported. And the bad guys, the fraudsters, especially people like who you're talking about, prey upon that, thinking that a lot of victims of crimes will never report the crime because out of fear of humiliation or rejection of their friends and shame and so forth. So there's a lot more fraud that goes on out there every day. And unfortunately, there's a lot of fraudsters like this one who are going to prey upon people just like that. Definitely. And X had two qualities that made him a genius and made him very successful at this. One, he was very expert at drawing people into a gray area so that they would be less likely to go to the cops, that what they were doing was maybe not quite on the up and up. And then the second thing he was a ma- he is a master at is concealing evidence. And so he was very good at drawing people into a gray area so that they felt ashamed or not willing to go to the cops. And then he was very good at covering his tracks so that there wasn't a clear chain of physical mm-hmm. evidence. A lot of in other in previous cases, the chain of evidence led to somebody else. Yeah, that's quite masterful. And that that is the basic definition of fraud, isn't it? Is is it to remain hidden and hidden from the actual person that's that's actually perpetrating the fraud? And it's like you said earlier, it's a shell game. So let's try to get the uh, information or the fraudulent information or, or uh, crimes we're committing and make it point somewhere else other than me and to take the, the good guys off track. 
uh, and chase somebody else or chase their tail in most cases. Definitely. My working definition, and yours may be a little different, is fraud is telling lies to mm. get money. And one of the things, I th if you're thinking, if somebody's approaching you something, this gets into fraud prevention, something seems too good to be true. If it's anywhere in that telling lies to get money, Absolutely. that's a red flag. Absolutely. Hey, you know, so I've been taking down some notes. You know, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what we sort of brushed on earlier about the ounce of prevention is better than that ounce of cure. And I, I, I really, really believe in that. You know, and so too often people just don't know what to do, you know, when they're a victim of a crime or fraud. So, you know, what, what do you think people could do, Jim, to be more proactive about fighting fraud? Well, I think in very simple terms, you know, you know, people talk about talking the talk versus walking the walk. I think people need to focus on walking the walk. And let me explain facts over emotions. Like your emotions are fine. Like I said, I had suspicions about this person. Sometimes you have, you have emotions about, Oh, this is a great business opportunity. It's fine to feel those emotions, but you need facts to act on the emotions and to perform basic due diligence. And this has to do with if somebody is applying for a job with your company if somebody is applying to be your real estate broker, your stock broker, your dentist, your doctor, anything like that, people send you emails, basic due diligence. What do I mean by that? Well, with Mr. X, you know, I spent several years researching this book, but only took two emails to find out that he wasn't who he said he was. And so what happened was I got his LinkedIn and I contacted one of his former employers and I contacted one of the schools he said he graduated from. The former employer was Microsoft and they had no record. <laughs> There's a flag. And yeah, and the school had no record of somebody with that name. As it turned out, the name was an alias. I eventually started doing public record searches and stuff. As you know, those things can be very time consuming. But the thing was, by doing that basic due diligence, you know, look at somebody's, anybody wants a business relationship with you, spend five minutes. Take a look at their employment history going back. Take a look at the reviews of their company. You know, if they're a dentist or doctor or real estate agent, take a look at their reviews online. Take a look at their LinkedIn profile. You know, if you find something that's kind of a red flag that doesn't add up, you know, you don't need to so necessarily solve the mystery. You can just exactly. say no thanks. Yeah, two people, too often people are just too trusting or, or it's a blind trust. I mean, I, I still like Ronald Reagan saying, you know, trust but verify before you commit to something. Absolutely. That was my boss's advice in the book, Trust But Verify. And also Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, sunlight is the best. Oh, that's great. Like get some facts. Yeah, get some facts. And the thing is too, is you should never feel, anytime you feel rushed to make a financial decision, that's a red flag. Exactly. I mean, some obviously it's different if you know, if you have like a medical condition and you have to be operated on, that's a different situation. But when somebody else is trying to rush you into making a financial decision, exactly. that's a red flag. You know, I think too, you know, most people that are going to read your book, Jim, uh, and, I, and you and I sort of talked about this pre-podcast, but most people don't read your book. They're not even going to be aware of it, but because you've developed your own expertise in fraud prevention and fraud investigation that these people reading a book, I mean, they're going to become an expert too with spotting fraud and understanding how to, I guess, use different technologies and things just like you said to figure out whether or not someone is trustworthy. And that's what's so important nowadays to make sure you don't have to become a victim. And you make a great point over and over again, you know, you perform that basic due diligence before you go into business with somebody. Uh, heck, I mean, we do that before we hire a babysitter for our kids. I just don't understand why more people don't do it when they go into big business with somebody else. Definitely. And I mean, I don't think anything's 100%, but I think the basic due diligence and the things that I kind of uh, reinforce and hammer home in the book, I think you could reduce your fraud risk 50%, 70%, 90% because you're going to spot these things. And like I said, you're, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to solve the mystery, but you're going to know enough to say no thanks. Absolutely. You know, and there's so many fraud practitioners that listen to uh, Red Bad Guys Day radio show. They don't appreciate uh, this next uh, set of uh, questions and discussion here where where I, in the book, you included the fraud triangle, which is, which is great. And, and there, there's probably a lot of listeners out there that don't understand what the fraud triangle is. But as a self-made fraud expert, Jim, you know, how do you think that fraud triangle fits into the con artists that you're looking at here and their motives that you describe in your book? Well, I would say in this context, there will always be con artists 
Okay. To me, it's about understanding the conditions, you know, what conditions create the opportunity for fraud, preparing yourself to spot it. You know, X and his pals had red flags that jumped out right away. Their former employers or schools. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Most bad guys and actually almost every bad guy that commits fraud or theft has that opportunity to commit that fraud, but they have to make that decision. There's a, there's a place in time where there's that, that overwhelming need to, that they need to fulfill, which is part of the fraud triangle. And somehow somewhere along the way, they rationalize why it's okay. In this case, a career fraudster, uh, he just says the heck with it. He, I mean, that's the name of the game for him. That that's their entire livelihood is committing fraud. So the rational the rationalization for them is is really maintaining that maintaining that expensive way of life, and that's that's how they really justify. It. So the fraud triangle fits into almost everything you're talking about, Jim, in this book. Definitely. Now the thing is, too, Skip, is you're a professional that's worked in this field. I had never heard of the fraud triangle before I became suspicious of Mr. X. What happened was once I became suspicious of him, I basically underwent a crash course in fraud and I started going to UNLV's library. We have special collections. We have a bunch of books by and about con artists under lock and key. You have to sign out for them with a librarian. So that's where I learned about the fraud triangle. That's when I started reading Frank Abagnale's books. Catch Me If You Can, Art of the Steel, uh, Kevin Mitnick, Ghosts mm -hmm. in the Wires. Uh, David Moore had the early classic, The Big Con, which was the basis for The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. I started learning about this stuff as we went. And so basically, once I discovered that X was probably a con artist, I wanted to understand his playbook because I wanted to boomerang it on him. No, that's good. And once you understand that, you can really learn more about that person's character or even motives or, or how they think which is so interesting when you put those pieces together like you did. Yeah, like I make the point in the book, if people listening are football fans, you know, it's sort of like the Wildcat, which took, you know, 10 years or so ago in football was the idea that, the, you know, you have all this motion, the quarterback lines up as a wide receiver, the running back goes in under the center and they do all this smoke and mirrors misdirection and then it winds up being a runoff <laughs> tackle. And so there's the thing was, once I learned about the fraud triangle, once I read David Moore, Frank Abagnale, I basically was in mm -hmm. Axis playbook and I could start anticipating, you know, the, you know, what plays he was running. And then, like I said, I jumped in his no. backfield and blew it up, you know, to take the metaphor to, to its extent. No, you can almost anticipate the next opportunity he's looking for, you know, that's, and that's, I think the name of the game for them. What's the next opportunity that, that they can execute it, which is going to be a plan and execute that plan or that fraud uh, without, without ever being caught. I mean, these guys do not want to be caught. So the plan is going to be very elaborate. Uh, and then once they execute the plan, that's yeah. going to help fulfill those needs or pressures that were, are probably financially based. And they've only rationalized why it's okay to do it. Definitely. I thought about them a little bit like, a, I don't know if you ever thought about this metaphor. Like, I think of them like a chameleon. Mm, good point. They, their camouflage is their only protection. You know, you think about a chameleon, if you can spot it, it doesn't have any armor. It doesn't have big teeth. It's not poisonous or anything like that. The only thing that makes a con artist dangerous is if people don't know exactly. they're a con artist. <laughs> You know, once you know they're a con artist, it's, you know, like I say in the book, it's the hunter right. becomes the hunted. Well, a lot of these fraud, you know, these con artists or fraudsters, I mean, they're very gregarious. They're very outspoken. People want to be around them. They dress nice. They're well-spoken. They're, they're probably flashing some money. Oh, yeah, I mean, in Vegas, in this case, what a great scenario is a high roller. And uh, they almost audience of people that are probably potential prey for them that are really uh, easy prey for them. I mean, they're, I mean, they are being hunted by the fraudster. Yeah. And he did a great job of fitting in like from my interviews when he owned a video game company, which turned out to be phony in Colorado, you know, he drove a Mercedes and he was real flashy there. Then in Vegas, you know, because he was in the clean tech kind of VC space, you know, he would wear a sport coat with a comic book t-shirt and blue jeans and Birkenstocks. You know, he had the right look to fit in. And one of the things too was, I say this early on in the book, one of the things that most stood out about X mm -hmm. was that nothing stood out about him. He didn't have any identifying tattoos or anything like that, jewelry. Uh, you never saw the car he came in. He would always just show up and the car was, you know, he either took Uber or a taxi or the car was parked around the corner or something. You never saw an ID. You never saw a license plate. You never saw anything like that. So he was kind of untrackable. The other thing was he changed his email frequently. Interesting. 
Yeah, that's a red flag. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I have new emails, but my old emails, they forward, you know, like what kind of legitimate business person would make well, it harder? We're in Birkenstocks with a, you know, $1,200 suit. That's really a red flag. <laughs> Insert joke here. Yeah. Uh, you know, hey, so Jim, you know, there's a fine line that separates, you know, a, a legitimate business from a fraudulent one, you know, entrepreneurship and these bad guys that are just hucksters out there. So can you explain a little bit further? What, what is that line? Do you think? Is there, is there such a thing? Well, I mean, it's a gray line. And so I defer to the experts. Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can. Great quote from him. I have in the beginning of chapter eight. If you look at any successful professional, a salesperson, a marketer, a real estate agent, a trader, they all have the same qualities as a con man. The only difference is that one side uses their talents in the right direction and the mm -hmm. con man is taking the easy way out. And so what the way I, to summarize that is the difference between a con artist and a legitimate business person, they both earn your trust, but a legitimate business person rewards your trust. A con oh, artist betrays your trust. That is so true. Boy, I, I, there's a lot of people I think are in retrospect thinking about some ex-friends that probably be betrayed their trust at some point uh, on a business deal. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I make the point of trying to get evidence before mm. you make a financial decision. Look into people's LinkedIn resume, you know, check their former employers, their schools, look for their Google reviews, those kinds of no, things. No, that's a great point. Yeah, that's going to reduce your risk of be, getting, finding, of doing business right, with somebody who's going to betray you. And the other thing, too, build it over time. No, build your and, business relationship and, over hey, time. Hey, guys, I hope everyone listened to what Jim was saying. He didn't say rely on one thing. It's a collection of information and evidence. You don't rely on just one LinkedIn page or, you know, a background that you found on, on Facebook. It's a collection of information that all points to the same thing, whether it's a truthful and, and real live human being or someone who's trying to be fictitious and hide their identity, but it's a collection of evidence that should make you uh, develop a, a good business decision before interacting with somebody, especially involving a lot of money. Definitely. And I will say too, if you find somebody that you like and you spot one of these red flags, give them a chance to explain it. There might be a legitimate explanation. You know, I would, again, I would want the evidence to be based on the explanation to be based on evidence, but that was the thing with X and his pals. I would ask them questions. They wouldn't answer. I kept asking. They started sending mm -hmm. cease and desists. I guess they, I guess they thought that was going to intimidate me. But like I said, mm -hmm. with the chameleon, you know, it, all it did was really got my, exactly. it got my blood boiling, and it made me just that much more committed to find out what they were doing and be as accurate as possible. I've gotten like stacks of cease and desists while working on this book. And some of the people who sent them, it has not worked out very well for them. No, that's awesome. One, that one of the uh, worst things a bad guy could ever do to me is tell me I can't do something or I, I, there's not enough there to investigate. I mean, that's just going to drive me even harder to dig deeper and deeper for that evidence because my gut's telling my me that I'm right. Just like I think it's telling you the same thing. Exactly. Like I think these people tend to be hyper rational rational to a full. And I remember the story, it was from a book or a movie about the mob, but it has something to do like there was an investigator and he was going to talk to a mobster. And I think this was, might've been fictionalized, but it always stuck with me was the mobster knew that no rational person would ever try to intimidate him because he was so dangerous and powerful. So the, the investigator, the first thing he did when he was going to talk to him is he had a brick and he smashed the guy's windshield. And then he sat down and he's like, let's talk because he wanted to convince the person from the beginning that he wasn't totally rational you know, to gain an advantage. You know, what I'm saying is with the Conrad from Mr. X, he was so rational. Gotcha. He was almost like a computer program. Uh, before we end today. So is, is there something in that in that book that you wrote that's so fascinating that you want to share before, uh, before we go today? Sure, I'd love to. Here's a section. This is about halfway through the book. And I had just come back from talking with the FBI and they had basically told me, you've got a really good book right here. And they told me, they, as you'll read, they didn't tell me everything. They didn't show, it's like a poker hand. They didn't show me all their cards. But I come back and I was talking to my boss, Walt, at the time. And I said to Walt, what was going on? And this is what Walt told me. He said, what you want to do is you want a minimum of collateral damage, Walt advises, in terms of fraud victims and damaged reputations. What you want, Walt says, is a controlled demolition. In Las Vegas, an often transient city, the most famous ritual that has taken hold involves blowing things up when they have outgrown their usefulness, often in spectacular fashion. Well, I recommend all my listeners to really check out this book and really dive in deep and 
really sent some questions to me and, and especially Jim about the book. It is such a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. So Jim, do you, you got any other advice uh, you like to give to any of the aspiring writers out there that may be listening right now? You know, I would say if one, follow your passion. Two, work on your skill set. There's a great book on the, the actual practice of writing called On Writing Well by William Zinser, Z-I-N-S-S-E-R. He talks about, you know, verbs, adjectives, all that. Really good shorthand book. And then I would say to, you know, find a platform that works for you so you can build your audience. Like you've got the podcast, you know, LinkedIn is where I built my audience. I have 432,000 whatever uh, subscribers, amazing people all around the world that follow me on LinkedIn. It's a great platform for me. I have fewer than 100 on Twitter. If I had just stuck on Twitter, I would have gone nowhere. So f- find a platform that fits what you're trying to do. Like you've got a great voice. You know, podcast makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm, I don't, this gets back to not being a journalist. I don't like clickbait. I don't like tragedies. I don't like violence. I like to write thoughtful, kind of constructive yeah, things where we find advice. common ground. Yeah, I'm starting to get together a second book. Uh, it's probably going to be an anthology. I mean, I've published several hundred wow, articles, and a lot of it has to do with uh, the media echo chambers and trying to get out of the whole left-right going on now. It's going to be a combination of some of my previous published work and some new work, and I'm hopefully, you know, about half. So tell us how our listeners can go buy or download your new book or, or even contact you for more help and advice. So Clean Tech Con Artists, A True Vegas Caper, just came out. It's available on Amazon, paperback and ebook. And you can reach me. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Jim Rossi, R-O-S-S-I. You can also go right to my website, Clean Tech Con That's Artists. Awesome. With becoming a self-made fraud expert. And what a great, great conversation today, Jim. I can't thank you enough for your time and the details about your fascinating book. So thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Hey, thanks, Jim. Hey, everyone. Hey, I just want to make sure that you all know that I'm going to have all of Jim's contact information listed in the podcast notes. This will be links to his website, links to Amazon, how to get his book, and all that other information that you can uh, use to contact Jim for more advice and just contact him uh, for general questions. I know Jim would be happy to help. And always, guys, hey, please subscribe to and like Run a Bad Guys Day Radio on Apple iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, and all those other free download services. I really appreciate your support and feedback. Hey, and thanks again, and stay tuned for another episode of Run a Bad Guys Day Radio. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast with Skip Myers. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and colleagues. You can learn more about us at ruinabadguysday.com or visit us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruin a Bad Guy's Day. Join us for another episode of Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast. The information provided in Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. You should consult with legal counsel or other professionals to determine what may be best for your individual or organizational needs.